Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gayatri. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Hey listeners of the Software People Stories podcast. We're so excited to share with you that our 100th episode is just around the corner. We invite you to join us as we hit the century mark and celebrate. We invite your comments as listeners of our podcast to either write into us or leave us an audio recording. As always, our email is podcasts@pm-powerconsulting.com. Hey, I'm in conversation with Jayant Swami, who's a author, improv speaker, and an excellent program manager. He talks about himself as a glue that holds team together and somebody who who brings the best of the people. He talks about his experience of two different projects being funnel for the business to relate to and the technology team to. of influence and he also shares how he has developed as a teacher and as a storyteller listen on hi jen good evening to you and uh, thank you for appearing in the software people stories how are you doing today oh, very well gayatri thank you for the opportunity when we uh, get started i wanted to hear your introduction uh, mighty interesting how do you introduce yourself to the, to the software fraternity to the software fraternity would be a tough question <laughs> uh, let me just throw out a few things about myself first i do have an mba from the indian institute of management bangalore the 1992 batch and after that my career has been checkered it's it's not followed any traditional path i would say i've just gone after my heart you know just done whatever i wanted to at some point and, and there have been times when i've done what i have to to so that's how it's been and i started off in management consulting then i did a stint as manager in financial planning and analysis at ge india and then i was also a guest faculty on a business school it's called ifim in bangalore for two years then we kind of my wife and i we moved to the us and given that my background was mostly in management so the closest fit i had uh, to start off in a job here was in the sap space and also when i i management consulting i was mostly doing what those days was popular as uh, corporate planning perspective planning business planning and then i was also involved in business process management so all of this kind of helped me to get onto the sap space and that's where i worked for 12 years i mostly worked as a program manager at any given point in time owning and implementing multiple projects then around 2012 
I was bitten by this, I am a square peg in a round hole kind of syndrome. And, and that's because my interests were more, I, I kind of felt like I was an artist caught in the career of a scientist. Because uh, I'm more of a right-brained kind of person. But then until then, traditionally, I had got, though consulting did offer a lot more perspective, including for lateral thinking. I mainly got constrained in a very left brain profession, I felt. And so that's when I came out of the typical software industry job. And the last eight years, I'm still fairly intricately been involved with the software industry, except my roles have changed. And I no longer manage the technical folk. I manage more of the processes and people. And the reputation I've been building is one of you know he's the glue who holds everybody together he's the one who builds relationships and then he's a good coach and mentor so that's kind of been the image that i have or reputation i have garnered after coming out of the it role wow what a great journey jen i can i have so many questions to ask i want to get started with what you want to do and what you have. Can you give us a few examples on that? Because all of us go through that, right? Uh, some of us more so than uh, others. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that what I want to do is fairly simple. I like to write. I like to talk. I like to teach. I like to interact with people. So trainer, writer. So I am a published author. I do training on the side. So it's partly, it has mean those expectations or aspirations have been met and then also when I though I did say that I did what I had to do that was for just a brief period and maybe specific to an IT role because when I think of my role as a manager right as a I kind of see I, I do end up doing all of these in some capacity or the other there is some writing there, there are those presentations you make and there is pouring up to the leadership. And then there's always coaching and mentoring your team members. And then there's writing, of course, you do get to write reports sometimes. So that, that's kind of my distinction of what I like to do, what I want to do. It's, it's just a nuance, I guess. But definitely what I don't want to do anymore is be in a role of managing the technical side of a software project. And the simple reason is my expertise does not lie there because I do not come from a typical technology or technical background. It's, I would say, an acquired skill. My natural skill is really more management. And of course, finance is the domain where I do have considerable expertise. Because before I did my MBA, I did pick up chartered accountancy. I, I did it because I was fairly good at maths, I guess. But after doing it, I started feeling that it was too boring for me. It was too routine. And that's kind of why I went and did an MBA. At least in the 90s, I thought that would offer us more options and it did because it helped me to get into consulting so yeah while today most of the erp systems and be it salesforce and everything is in cloud when you got started uh, you it must have been the in-house uh, in the the data warehouse creating the data and everything right so uh, how, was is, how was your journey was there a value first of all and making the business understand that there is a need for all the data to be in one place and then 
after that then the correlation then intelligence and then clean up and stuff so how was that uh, convincing stakeholders uh, given that you have the nuance as well as the background in that because i i have often found it very hard to get business to do that because that is the that brings out a lot of discipline operational excellence and a lot of it in one place right that i think let me answer it slightly differently i was not so high up that i had to let's say manage stakeholders expectations of the sap system itself that was mostly that used to be mostly my boss who used to do that okay so the the, the pressure was off me for that level of convincing but what i ended up managing right was mostly the business process streams order to cash financials procure to pay so and there i found it pretty there i had no problems because see the business is this is what we want to do can you solve this problem and at least with me the advantage they saw was that i understood their world way better than i did the technical world so i was really their interface with the technical folks that i did manage and then it was really people skills talking to the technical folks explaining it to them or specking it out and i always prided myself as more a business person and if we ever had to sell a technical solution or convince the business or any stakeholder about its validity i would play the role of looking at the advantages disadvantages but i would always have the lead technical architect or the programmer with me and he or she would i would rely on them to really go deep and explain the technical nuances because i neither did i understand it well enough to explain it and i had no hang up getting them looped in or involved and in fact i enjoyed showcasing them because a lot of the time technical people are very intelligent very smart but they don't necessarily want to be in the front end for some people it's a skill that is worth developing which i enjoy doing because when i was doing teaching or then i also did the stint where i used to train mba students for gmat and then for cat and then i would train them how to do public speaking how to take participate in group discussions how to take their interviews all this was in the early 90s midnight so given all that right so for me it was always about empowering my team members even if they were just peers not necessarily did they always report up to me because when you're a program manager sometimes you even have people couple of levels higher than me reporting to me just for the sake of the project so it's it's i had to you, i had to get a lot of work done without really having any authority over anybody that's where you know the gift of the gab the being a little touchy feely and sensitive to other people definitely having the empathy and empowering them to step up these skills really helped me and that's why i say management getting work done through others is always what i see as my core competence Okay. I if I were to do it myself, I don't think I would really be that very good. A lot of these, especially if it's something very technical, I wouldn't be good at all. And even others, that's what I found better at getting things done than doing them myself. It's it's a skill. Agree. And the the people skills and collaboration, right? Most of the most of the projects, many big projects fail. A could not be incrementally developed. or there were really process issues that made it 
go wrong uh, can you get some examples of success stories in this management consulting anything that stands out so of course i do use the word management consulting loosely but i did work in microsoft and at t mobile i was really a manager program manager in the okay with then working there and so projects wise interesting but last 6 years has been more management consulting i would say because okay i do take a wide variety a curated variety of projects and let's start with the latest because what really amused me is that suddenly now there is this whole product management which is really an offshoot of program management and i kind of get the concept because even when i was working in as a program manager i always used to say whatever work we do has to be productized we should be able to reuse it at the drop of a hat so whether it's setting up the processes or the documentation right or the skill set or even documenting the methodology so that's how i always saw it so last year i worked at nordstrom it was a hardcore leasing related project because now leasing that the word the new rule the accounting standards brought out a new rule which is now mandatory is that until up to 2 to 3 years back if we if companies had leased assets and liabilities they need not have shown them on their balance sheets because okay money wise they wash the debits and credits usually wash but since a lot of companies have huge millions billions worth of assets so the accounting standard said uh, you know what we need, even if we, if it is just setting off assets and liabilities we want to see it so i did work on a couple projects there one in microsoft one in nordstrom the nordstrom one really turned out to be interesting because my role was that of help with the implementation on the basically help the, the business program manager so once we started the project we found it's a fairly simple product that needs some configuration and customizing then obviously i was the one who was the early adopter looking at the features working with the vendor and then actually directing what changes had to be done it came from the nordstrom team but then i was the interface so i had to understand the product a little more than i normally would have as a program manager and that was fun and maybe because it is a product i knew what it was doing the features and we had worked out with the vendors then everything fell in place right then i was managing the testing getting the team to test it but i was the one who was directing and actually coming up with the testing methodology of deciding what should be tested coach and train all the other users on how to adopt the project that's another example right where on one hand yes i did enjoy getting a getting my hands and feet wet and getting a little more technical than i normally would have but the other side is you know it gave me immense satisfaction because i was kind of architecting this whole the business side of testing and then i was also doing the training and coaching and i also had a couple of vendors who had to develop a manual and then i was kind of the architect of the manual they wrote it up but then i was the one who was conceptualizing in in many ways you know all my passions rolled together so that is one that i enjoyed recently and before that believe it or not at microsoft we did a similar implementation of the leasing system but the project was totally different the role there for me was a lot of data modeling financial modeling balance sheet analysis and it's really 150 company codes so every one of them has probably a different currency 
and there are four types of currencies that were being used. So it was a fun exercise. This is again, I had never done anything that deep in finance before. That level of financial modeling using my accounting knowledge and then reconciling all the balance sheets and the different currencies and making decisions on how currency exchange differences could be accounted for. That was fun. And again, it was the, it was the, the project was a huge success because despite the huge value and the volume, uh, we did meet under plus or minus 3% accuracy. We were able to implement the project in the given time. It's not really an error. The difference is something we reconcile after it's implemented, right? It's acceptable to implement and move forward. And then a month or two post implementation is spent in reconciling the differences so the accounting is so these two i would say were the last latest two i did were more fun and i hadn't thought of it talking to you suddenly this seems so much more fun <laughs> i hadn't thought of them as that much fun i just enjoyed when i most of the time most of the time i think when we relate to our own journey right it, it makes us that much more nicer and much better it uh, the first project it almost sounds like you were the product owner from for a lot of the parts, be it from a business testing, architecting the testing, or technical manual, right? While you are not writing it, but you are giving requirements, you are championing the team. Uh, would you call yourself a product owner under the guise of being a program manager as well? Let me answer it differently. Since I went in more as a consultant, yes. The person I reported to, he was the product owner. So you got it right. I, I'm a short timer, right? Six months or eight months, I leave and I go away. So he was the official product owner. And basically, whatever he owned is what I was helping him. Uh, just one correction. The manual was for the business. It was not the technical one. Okay. Because okay. whatever I did was, everything was for the big. I use word like architecting, but I meant it's, this is more from the business side. So probably a better word would be the building up the scenario. Scenario building is probably a better word. Okay. It just the writer in me tends to use these words a little loosely. That's okay. That's all right. One question I, in both your stories, what is reflecting is one is the deeper understanding or learning of the product before getting the, the team started. And the second part is learning of the financial financials and being the you know uh, getting your uh, yourself better in the domain front of it from a technical as well domain so from a learning part of it right that seems to be the recurring uh, theme when i heard you tell your story how do you motivate yourself to learn when you get something new there is always fear that okay can i learn can i learn after a gap of so many years what makes you on the on your toes to get that Good question. So let again, two parts, like everything else. One, you won't believe it. For me, I things work the other way. If it's monotony, if it's the same thing, I get bored. So if there is something new, the whole thrill of learning something new keeps me going. But having said that, yes, especially as I age, I wouldn't say my capability to learn is limited, but the domains where I can, for example, if it was something very technical, no matter how much I try, I won't, I'm not able to learn. So I think that's where my right brain mess helps. I, what I quickly understand is usually the concept. 
So I'm fairly good at getting the concept. So that is my approach to learning. Okay. And as long as it's not very technical, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly open to it. Plus, I think I'm open to it. I'm always, I kind of see myself as a lifelong learner. So I'm always looking to see what's new. And that's really how I keep myself going. That, that's really, in fact, I would say what keeps me up, get up in the morning every day. So that's part of the creativity, right? I mean, had I really been a full-time writer, maybe it would have been. Because even in writing, that's what we do, right? When I write a book, even if it's fiction, there is a certain element of research involved. And then when you read, you do the research. Okay, this is what somebody said. This is what somebody else said. And this is an unrelated thing. But now what do I think about it? Do I connect the dots where others have not? Do I see a new side to it that others may or may have not? Is how I use it in writing. And of course, when I do it at work, I, I have to look at it a little differently. I have to look at it as, okay, for the success of the project, what are those three things that we need to focus on? So that's how I approach it. Basically, learn by concept and then just go after those one, two, three critical things. And of course, it's not other things are important too, but there will always be other people who are good at it, right? And half the work is in identifying who is good at what and who can help you where. So that's also what makes learning easy for me. It doesn't mean, and I don't see learning as knowledge at all. So to me, learning does, and it's not, it's not equivalent to gaining knowledge. I may not even remember anything even six months after it's done. I see it more as, okay, this is a problem. This, and we need to get at a solution. And these are the possible solutions. How do we get there? That is the learning for me. And then if somebody else is good at it, it's them solving it, right? I can step back and they can explain it to me. And if there is something I, they want me to do and help them, I'm willing to do it if they prove themselves to be the expert. So th this is how I go about it. Okay. It's kind of the captain of a ship, but they say you can be a leader by following too, right? Absolutely. Now we keep talking about servant leader. That's the essence of it. So when, when you're talking to me, it was more around Goldratt's principle of theory of constraint. Understand where the constraint is. For you to understand the constraint, you need to understand the concept and have that mental model to say, okay, where, is, where are these things fitting in? And you know within which block who's expert and then go there, right? That's a very clear or a nuanced art of program management, right? And you have been a trainer, program management, as well as coaching multiple people, able to make their art or skill better. So as a coach, as a trainer, how has been your journey with that? And any stories there? Yeah, I can tell a couple. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, even in the 90s, I used to actually train students to take CAT and other MBA entrances. And what I found then the most popular was, and this was those days you didn't have camera phones, right? So we would actually organize for a hand, whatever they called it, hand video recorder. And then whenever any, for every participant, we would, he or she, when they're speaking, we would videograph them. And the first thing I would tell them is you go watch yourself, feedback yourself, come talk to me. That is the first thing I made them do. And then, of course, I would give them my inputs as well. And after that, we would actually have them, they would get the feedback. They have to incorporate it and do a second presentation on a different subject. And they had to evaluate and see the improved. So this was one technique I used and it was very popular because it wasn't very common. We're talking about 90s India where the rush is more towards getting marks and exams. The fact that somebody was giving people this forum itself made some of these 
very made them very great. Now, having said that, in the last few years, and now that's the other thing. Like you were asking about the learning, some things come naturally to me. One is definitely behavioral sciences. For example, any psychometric instrument, right, or leadership style. Funny thing is, or the good thing is, what I found, I just have to take the test and score myself, and then when I read the profile, I. pretty much understand the entire theory behind so i'm like okay this is what they're saying these are the four attributes those are the two by two matrices and this is why it happens it just falls in place i don't need too much of an explanation i get it but i wouldn't say that's how i learn in every other area so it's just a skill only when it comes to behavioral sciences so last few years what i did since program management is my expertise i found that training again you know it can get limiting if i'm just offering people and saying interpersonal skills or leadership i did i saw that there wasn't a huge market or appetite immediately for that because the question would be especially the technology companies okay how can we see the results how does this translate then what i did is then they had a lot of them had project management courses so i did so i did train at microsoft also as a trainer as a guest trainer i did go and do it then i developed my own i said okay i am good at behavioral sciences and the feedback i constantly get on even on project management is not necessarily for anything else but for my relationship building with other folks so i developed the course that i call the art of project management so what i did is i we start off showing them what the science is what the art is and that from that point onwards right the the balance 80% is focuses on the art and when i say the art it's really leadership communication i even have a small module where i do the present do the presentation to the rest of the team because on any project all people have to do all that that has been the fun experience and i also run this at the university of washington now uh, it, it's for their staff not for the students okay, okay. this is part of their hr and od so i offered it and they liked it and i had a wide variety of participants on the couple of classes i ran i had right from a project director to a project coordinator all from different departments and the other thing i do on my training is they are fully participation oriented i have my own repertoire of management games that i constantly update and use and really the goal is they should have fun they should not have a minutes rest where they're just listening to me if i have to just speak and they have to listen to me that's not fun for me or them that's the style i've been cultivating and that's i feel has been my success the answer yeah yeah i think what you said is almost your teacher or a trainer in you has been evolving over the years right from your cat days to today the graduating from Uh, somebody who's trying to give a entrance exam to actually a college educator a director of program management to do that i think i i really see that you, as evolution as a trainer i'm also curious when you are uh, when you talk about games how are you doing it in the covid times have you also made it all online or is it more of somewhat some of them with the in person how how are you adapting to the covid times trainer Yeah so the training of course i get very few assignments in a year it's not that i'm overloaded or anything okay. so so i did have a session with the university of washington that was scheduled for april so we had to cancel it because that's when covid started 
and what lot of what i do since it's behavioral stuff it's not very easy to make it go online i do have another the fall sessions are scheduled for late november or december and then i am going to work on convert it will have to be a fairly diluted a subset of the original course but i'm going to look at it and see how i can make it zoom friendly and going forward probably what i would do is i would have one on site version and also have its online version so depending on the circumstances we would pick whichever work yeah it's specific to just the you know, that's really the only currently that's only one i'm working on because this year has been all about my book that's getting published next month in october so it's been working on that the marketing the cover design edit i mean approving the edits and then in parallel i'm working on another really confidential project for suggested by my agent so that that has been my focus in the last 6 months you know apart from my couple of consulting gigs that ended somewhere in june or july so okay. the training has been fairly i would say lean in the last going forward that's the aha i've had and so just come up with the zoom version and keep the on site version intact don't need to mess with it totally that's the approach i've decided to do nice so we also do a lot of training in the agile space what we have done is of course uh, as you rightly said we have kept the on site version as is while we have adapted it using the uh, mural using the zoom using the uh, some of the uh, surveys and everything we have kind of moved away from the usual one and we have created a version to be used so a lot of the games now we can uh, we can do at least in our space may not be in every space but can uh, deploy it online while uh, definitely there is a slight dilution is there uh, we are right. also seeing some more uh, differences in terms of how we are using it so that's that, that's why i was just a curiosity question as to how go ahead you were saying about how you have adapted and then how zoom has thrown up some new opportunities though there are some constraints not just zoom what we are doing is we are we use a combination of tools cloud tools uh, we use something for surveys online surveys something for a mural uh, to have a white board which is a, mm. a white board to use and we send send some material pre read material uh, using the training from the back of the room we actually make them do it and some games we have that they can online so uh, using google drive and stuff so i think we have used or uh, we have exploited a few digital tools to make the experience as close as possible this is an ongoing thing because now more and more teams want to be agile whether everybody mm. alone and they want they don't want the command and control model anymore asking this question around other sets of businesses are adapting as well yeah, yeah. I, have, i have been holding my horses on your author on your multiple books you authored and you also spoke about uh, your new book coming up right initial question is i know authoring a book is part science part art which needs a lot of discipline to sit and write what are your key takeaways having authored so many books not so many so gayatri only two two novels <laughs> but yes i did write the anthology of a humanitarian so yes i do have two more non fiction that i wrote and they were not commercial they were more private organizations social organizations that were marketing them Uh, so one book was published in 2013 colors in the spectrum the second novel is being published now so for me writing is the easy part getting it published has been the tough part though now i have an agent and he's awesome 
So I think that constraint has gone away. So now I work with him and he tells uh, what publishers may be looking for. And that's what I would go after and write. Uh, but for me, it, uh, the writing serves a lot of purposes. One, like I said, I was the right more, the right brain, the creative. And at least in our times, we could not make a living out of it. So the next best is to have a job that you like, which is what I did, to pay the bills and then spend a lot of my time writing. And the interest I might have developed right in my school days, because in the 70s and 80s, when I grew up, right, we, India I mean, Bangalore did not even have TV till 82, for example. And then I was a voracious reader. Even when I was eight or 10 years old, I was the member of three local libraries and stuff like that. So I think somewhere I always, when I read all these books, my mind was more than reading, in addition to reading the story, it was also recording the approach, the format, or how authors write. I think it was all there. Tried somewhere in the mid or late 80s to write a long story, a novella, and sent it off to some local magazines in India. They were all rejected. And then it went on the back burner. And then, you know, when I was actually on the flight coming to this country, that's the time suddenly Vikram said, he had become a big name, big name author on the international front, reading his book. I was, and until then, right, Indian authors did not necessarily become big on the international scene, save for an Arkin Orion or Naipaul. I started thinking, you know, I took and write. I've just never tried it. Why don't I do it now? And that's how it started. So, the, but then the output has been, I would say, fairly limited, considering I've been doing it for the last 15 years. But for me, the approach is, again, it's more an art than a science. But the funny thing is, having written two novels and now working on a... I'm working on two other books, one nonfiction and the other is a management fable. So I have probably developed the science of my own. So it happens. And so now I understand I have my own format. I cannot write a book with just one or two characters. I need a minimum of five characters whose journeys I trace. And that's kind of becoming a standard feature, how I write. And then at some point in time, it develops into a science. You know, I partition them off. I know what the chapters are. I know which character is going to come in when. Of course, it goes through a lot of iteration. That's kind of how it's developing. But of course, you know, a lot of the time I have to start writing and then it's like, you get started on the journey, the path will show itself to a point. That is how I do. So it's like when I reach halfway in the forest, you know, suddenly it all opens up and I know how to get out of it. And that's the point I actually spend months sometimes just reorganizing and editing and even restructuring whatever I had written so far. I spend a lot of time doing that restructuring at that point in time. But to get there, I have to in the initial days, I have to just keep writing, have an outline maybe. Apart from that, my only advice to anybody would be write, write, write. That's the only way. There's no silver bullet. There's no other magic. You have to put pen on paper or words on Microsoft Word and write. Very, very nicely put in. I feel that your, your you know, gears are tricking when, you're, you know, when, when you're attending your next set of novel. We just published a, a book called Five Tantras of Inter Enterprise Agility. Last mm -hmm. Saturday, we published it. And wow. uh, one of the things that we have found out, at least as a consulting firm, is that we use a writer and we use alongside a owner or a product owner. 
who brings the overall vision of it and the writing part of it uh, one person does and lot of the smaller parts let's say there is a, it's about technical architecture one person brings the information and and one another person talks uh, we, we have brainstorming sessions on table stories what can yep. be. i think it is also somewhere we have created a collective wisdom so to speak on book writing but uh, we haven't cracked it one of my friend used to say be liberated just write yeah. absolutely I think that's exactly what you're also saying. Just don't feel any inhibition in terms of writing. Just right. write. Absolutely, and you know, it's of course there were times you know I was going through intense periods in my life, and so writing was therapeutic too. And the inhibition part, and that's why I joined up a nine-month writing fiction writing course at the University of Washington in two thousand two, way back. And that's exactly what it did to me. I lost all inhibitions. because every week right you have to write something and go workshop it and everybody else reads it constructively critiques it you do the same to them so <clears throat> once you go through that right you're like it's like an actor right i mean initially you may have inhibition but then if that's your career that's what you want to be that's what you want to do you have to get to a point where okay right or wrong this is the way it's just a role so it's the same with writing too the other thing you just said also struck a chord I usually choose material that I know or I understand so I pro- probably play both roles that you said the writer and the owner if I had to write about technical architecture I would need an owner so I would probably just take the technical stuff put it into english make it user friendly put in my stories appeal to the reader and then go back and tell the owner can you make sure that I didn't mess up with the technical stuff gave the wrong message and It's interesting I had to do that in fact you know at the one of the anthropology I wrote it was a humanitarian and she is this very revered person and we had to write about her life experiences okay that's what I learned you know and she would be like no I did not say and I said something else so you, I could not even get one word wrong you know she said when I met so and so and this is what I told them it had to be ad verbatim so I could not just even if it was grammatically a little incorrect because it's colloquial so that's what I learned at that point in time I had to write it read it back to her and make sure you know I got her approval it's a slightly different ball game there right because it's it's kind of like a biography so she is a product owner i have no right to mess with the content <laughs> my ownership is only with the structure with the form whereas she owns the content and then that's why i started with fiction because there i have pretty much a lot of freedom i can apply both and the latest the one family secrets it's there's also a certain amount of my management and corporate life i have brought it into that novel because that's what i am good at that's what i used to do day in and day out right so it had to feature prominently in the book i almost feel that while you're talking it's that there are so many more stories that i can glean away from you <laughs> and it is also very interesting to look at your own life to say okay the story and how can i ensure that the stories are being heard and told yeah i guess so that's true and i think it gets even more true as we get older we just have that much more that's all it doesn't necessarily mean we get better or wiser we just that, that's what i would call as experience right the been there done that the volume of that goes up and if you've been fairly perceptive and learn from some of those mistakes and 
learn from others mistakes and if you have made a mental note to me that is what i would value as experience it's not necessarily like this teacher used to say when we were kids right so when we were in the 10th grade or something that's what she used to tell so just make sure you're not just studying here one year 10 times when you're studying here for the 10th year there should be a progression it should not just be that first year that you repeated 10 times without any improvement right that is the value she used to say which i think is it was very well put i mean for 12 year olds or 15 year olds i think it did leave a mark it is, it is a very impressive one right uh, right from your writing skills to your training skills i see your evolution uh, moving uh, from one point to the other in fact one of the reasons why we do this podcast the software people story is also just that can yeah. we hear the software stories and people can learn get inspired and apply in their own uh, life Absolutely. In fact, storytelling, especially in today's corporate world, right? In, I mean, even when I work as a program manager, right? And I have to give a status of the project, right? It's a presentation, let's say, to leadership. To me, it's still a storytelling format. That's really the most effective way. It's like, okay, this is the, intro, the introduction is really, this is where we are and these are our two achievements and this is the big issue or risk that we have for which we need your help. You start with those three things, right? And then you say, okay, now let me give you the background, how we got there. And then at the end of it, okay, this is what I want from you. And this is what I promise my team will deliver in the... So that, that's really the whole story arc, right? The introduction, the main part and the conclusion. Like and that. except that, yeah, because it's it just that you know, though that's the, the very flat way of how you're taught the structure, in real terms, really, the introduction in fiction writing or even any storytelling, what we say is we need an inciting incident. That is what we go with. So that is how you have to hold audience attract attention. So even if it's a meeting, right, if it's a project status, it's more like we were doing this. And then, by the way, we got those two things going well. We got this appreciation. They told us this. And then this happened. So you just structure it that way. Then you structured it on the two good things and the one bad thing that happened and you got in everybody's attention. And then the main part of the meeting is spent on, you know, options or how do we solve it or what went wrong or why did we do this? And, and then the last 10 minutes, you know, you, the wrap up is really a call to action. You just don't leave, right? You're like, okay, this is where I need you. This is what we will do. And by this time, and then if that doesn't happen, this is the contingency plan. So you end with that call to action, which is the storytelling, right? So you have the protagonist, you have the inciting incident, and then stuff happens in their life. And then you go through all the complications. At the end of it, what we say is you need the emotional arc. The protagonist has to be changed in some way. If he or she is in the same spot where they are when everything started then why did you even tell the story you can have exceptions you can have a nuance where you say that is my story after all this happening no change is the change in that character that's just one use case but in most cases that's really what is the takeaway at the end right that's our climax and denouement really climax happens and what happens after that is the denouement can you in fact imagine you being in a meeting and narrating your plot. <laughs> lovely, lovely. And it is, in the end of the day, sometimes I think our the presentations or PPTs have really killed that art. We are so into the box, so to speak, saying that the slide, what, what can I put, what is it, rather than talking from a 
you know overall story how is it moving what is Absolutely. the i think that is a very beautiful way of putting it there i agree because i think that's an art itself right i mean and i at least when my team does presentations that's what i try to train them personally even to me right when i do a slide deck to me just a mnemonic the bullets there are really mnemonics for me to put a boundary around what i'm going to talk i really don't want to put sentences where you know then the audience just sits and tries to read it that's not the purpose right so what i do believe is in put in considerable visuals and just put in the key things in bullets so the word the key words set off the image in my mind and then that gets converted to an incident or a story or issue whatever so that is my approach to keep it slim and that's how i've evolved it you know and like i said again a lot of the time just being a program manager not having gone further in my career because i was laterally moving all the time in a way it helped because i ended up i did all these things that i do like i love making presentations it's like i get a high you know when i'm up there making these presentations it gives it's a high in itself i'm almost like an actor and this again i just one more thing i wanted to add i did do improv for a bit for 6 months so improv is acting for non actors wow okay it's a session of workshops it's all the spontaneous exercises you do and for me it was really i'm fairly uninhibited so that's not why i was going therefore i mean i did it for fun but the biggest thing i learned from going to improv is my ability to learn listen using my body that's really how actors do the body language right if they're doing a scene they have to read each other's body language so it's like i can't be thinking of myself in fact i should be thinking of the other person i am acting with even in your when you are listening and so we would do a lot of improv exercises and believe it or not it taught me to i was a fairly good listener even before that though i do talk a lot uh, i'm fairly good at listening and of course my way of listening is i usually add a word here there so people sometimes think i'm interrupting actually i am not it's a little participative but i listen this one took it to a whole new level where i was literally listening with my body and how i proved it to myself was i did a training course after that at the city of tacoma i think it is the same project management course that i had done the last two years i did it for a third time and then at the end of it you know how you have all this feedback interesting he talks well he communicates conceptual clarity so there was not that much of a change but then you know at the end of it there's usually this the last question is always about how did the faculty or instructor handle participant questions believe it or not until then i would have gotten maybe fours and fives there but after i did improv that was one attribute where everybody gave me a five in my ability to listen to them and address their question suddenly went up from 80% to 100% ability and for me it was like okay it's it's all thanks to improv because there we do a lot of exercises where for example we do a simple thing where everybody in a group we have to say one word and keep going as long as possible and complete a strict there what we learn is i should try to think of the simplest word that will be a bridge between the person before me and after because if i use a fancy word or some big word and then it ends the story it's over right so that is when you start learning this that you have to keep listening you have to keep thinking about others it's not about me anymore i'm just a speck i just have to keep contributing to what's happening so you and then there are a whole lot of other stuff you know where eye contact and coordination that it, it all depends you have to listen with your body so that's one thing i wanted to throw out because for me that's been the 
single most exciting thing I learned from improv. Wow, wonderful. I never heard somebody say you should listen with your entire body. It's almost, one is your, your mind is still. It means that you have to be there at the moment, not letting somebody thoughts going in and also continue to be having those third stage of listening. Sense that you know you listen as a person. Very insightful, I should say, Jen. I'm just putting it differently. I'm probably saying the same thing. <laughs> what you said, focus. I'm probably saying listen with your body. That's all. <laughs> I can relate to it. I think. Um, yeah. I, I I know we are out of time. It's, it's yeah. just a wonderful conversation, Jen. I enjoyed it. Any thoughts that you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, at least in today's world, what the world needs is your empathy and compassion. Empathy means you should be able to, I'm sure everybody knows, but I'll just repeat. Empathy means that you should be able to put yourselves into the shoes of another. And compassion means that uh, you have to show it. An act of kindness is needed. It could just be a thought. It could be a, it could be a support that you show, but, or it could be something much more. I think right now, where we are, the world over, those are the two things that we need. That would be my message. Thank you, Jen. Very well put. <laughs> I love the conversation. Hope our listeners also do. And thank you so much for your time. And I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much, Gayatri. I think this was fun. And I really am grateful for the opportunity. All right. Bye. We thank Siddharth for the music and Malavika for promoting the Software People stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.